All right, we are back, and I would like to draw your attention to, as we often do, that fine publication, the Sacramento News and Review. They have a section titled Green Days on a regular basis, which we have uh, frequently quoted from, and I'd like to quote from the May 24th edition, article by KDVS's own Tara Eschke, which starts out as follows. Those of you who have worked at a restaurant surely have witnessed this. Pounds of leftovers scraped into trash cans every day, all year long. This waste represents tons of squandered food, not to mention methane emissions rising from landfills. But a growing number of Sacramento activists who embrace the philosophy of zero waste want to redirect leftovers from the trash to the community garden. To talk about her very own article will be Tara Eschke. Welcome back, Tara. Thank you for having me. Good start. Talking about uh, something I've noticed, uh, just the sheer giant volume of food that comes out of restaurants and, and, and also out of uh, supermarkets and things. I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of, of, I guess, raw material that could be better used. That's true, yeah. And as, as the segment that you were mentioning says, um, this issue came to my attention when I was working at a local restaurant that should not be named on air. <laughs> okay. But, um, you know, it was a burger joint and... <laughs> I would see them just put like almost whole burgers into the trash can every single day. And, you know, we're just sitting there hungrily like, oh, like, can I just have one? <laughs> well, just uh, because they got they got too cold or too, the time limit was passed or? No, it's just leftovers, you okay. know, like oh. they just throw them away. And that's what that's what restaurants do. Yeah. And that's the norm. And it's sort of something that um, you don't really see if you're a diner at the restaurant or you don't really think about, you know. There's maybe half a sandwich left on my plate. I'm probably not going to eat it later. You don't really think about where it's going to go. Well, just give me an idea. I mean, I'm not. I never did work in a restaurant like that. Mm-hmm. How much? How much food are we talking about in a typical place? In the you know, by the time they're done, just ballpark. Ballpark it. Uh, Ten bur- fifty burgers. I don't know. They're scraps, you know. At least hundred pounds of food, you know, going wow. down the drain. Wow. Yeah. Good food, too. Wow. <laughs> that is a, a resource, I suppose, mm-hmm. if you can think of it properly. And you have in this article, uh, what, what are they doing with this stuff instead of just tossing it in, in the landfill? There's different ways to handle food waste. Um, the most common one of being composting, which is can be done in your backyard. Um, the issue for Sacramento, at least, you know, is that there's no facility to take the food waste to. And so... They're working on a different sort of technology, which is called anaerobic digestion, which involves, as the word anaerobic implies, taking out all the oxygen and sort of letting it heat up and letting those organisms turn it into this stuff called digestate, which is a form of fertilizer that can be redistributed to different farms and used as a fertilizer. And so that's a, that's a process that's similar to composting. That's very interesting to me because uh, I've been composting ever since I was a Davis undergraduate and thought mm-hmm. it'd be a very you know, eco-friendly thing to do. But if my compost pile in the backyard is kind of going anaerobic, that's when you worry about it kind of getting smelly and stuff. And so you mm-hmm. like to get a lot of oxygen in it. But I guess this process is just different. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't give you the technical details. Yeah. I'm not an expert on that. Yeah. It's not the same as burning trash, which is what a plasma arc incinerator is called. It's a very controversial um, technology because that involves burning the waste, which you lose resources that way, basically. Right. And also, you know, you're, you're putting out smoke, which is also an emission. It's not a technology that aligns with um, the zero waste philosophy, which is what I'm talking about in this article. 
Did you have a chance to talk to anybody that's been on the receiving end, putting it on their on their on their uh, rose bushes and things? Or? <laughs> no, I didn't actually, but I did talk to this guy, David Baker, who yeah. um, is one of the founders of the Green Restaurants Alliance of Sacramento, and he has this pilot program that they basically collect the food scraps from any restaurants that want to be involved in the program, and then they use a thing called the Earth Tub, which is basically just a big tub for composting that that you can sort of put in an urban setting and have it be like a sort of makeshift facility, very small, you know, it's a different way of dealing with it than, for example, the Bay Area, which has a very large composting facility. Um, but it, it just works as well, you know, it's just about small batches and small, small amounts of compost that come out of it, but those are going back to the farms, which is very useful for the people that are owning the farms and the gardens. I know Davis likes to be in the cutting edge of this thing, and you mentioned here some of the Davis Zero Waste Resolution, and I guess that uh, they consulted with the Davis Farmers Market, and that they've been adopting a zero waste policy. Well, yeah, that was this gentleman by the name of Mike Simonitis, mm -hmm. who owns zero waste consulting firm called Waste Busters, and he also has worked with the Davis Chamber of Commerce and the Davis Farmers Market to make that the first green farmers market in the region. The second being, I believe, the West Sacramento Farmers Market. And he also worked with the Whole Earth Festival, which has been a zero waste event for a few years, and also w wrote this resolution. The city of Davis actually does have a pilot food collection route, which I believe they began in 2011 and they were going to evaluate at the end of the year. So I'm not sure what came out of those evaluations. Well, I hope you do a follow-up piece on this, because I think it'd be great if you could, like, uh, you know, uh, go down to uh, one of these facilities with a bucket and come back with some <laughs> stuff for your garden. That, that would be ideal. Yeah, that would be ideal, definitely. Well, your article talks about the, the zero waste philosophy. What, what exactly is that? So zero waste is a... a newer concept um, that basically entails no resources should be burned or buried with the goal of at least 90% diversion from landfills and that's in keeping with the zero waste philosophy. So basically that just means that what we would consider to be trash we repurpose and we sort and what we can't repurpose we go upstream and we get rid of that. And uh, it's a relatively new concept I think um, it became more well-known late 1990s, early 2000s. Since then, there have been a lot of cities that have set the zero-waste goal. Uh, the first in the area being San Francisco, which I believe set their zero-waste goal in 2001, and I'm pretty sure their goal is for 2020. And Sacramento's zero-waste goal is for 2040, but not to say that they're just dragging their feet. Sacramento just doesn't have the infrastructure that the coastal cities do, and we're sort of behind on that a little bit. So there's definitely needs to be a lot more action plans in place for that infrastructure to be built. Is this something that John Q. Citizen can help with, or we need to get some, some tax dollars diverted? Or what, 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 is there something we can do to help this? On a citywide level, on a municipal level, that might not be the, the way that John Q. is going to deal with it. The way that the average person can deal with it is to when they go into a restaurant, for example, just basically ask them where you know what do you yeah, do sure. with your food scraps? Yeah. Where where are they going? A lot of places, you know, if you go to the Delta Venus Cafe in downtown Davis, they've got a composting bin in the backyard. 
you know, there's a lot of a lot of businesses that do it that way. They certainly want to respond to customer requests and that people would right. feel better about it. And right. Sure. And that's, that's and I mean that's the way that you can sort of put your money where your mouth is and decide where your dollars are going to go. Other than that, you know, just being mindful of taking home your food, you know, there's always going to be a hungry person around to eat it. <laughs> I mean, that's for sure. Someone will eat it. If not, someone's dog will eat it. You, you know, it's it's funny when you say that, that there's been a, uh, over the last generation sort of a great, you know, sea change that there was a time not that long ago it was considered really kind of lame to take food home with a doggy bag. And thank God we've, we've evolved out of that, that everyone realizes yeah. now you really shouldn't waste the food. It's, it's pretty much, it's almost universal, mm-hmm. thank God. Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, also, I'm sure that the portions have gotten a lot bigger as well. So that, <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> you know, you can't just shove it all down there at once anymore the way you used to. Well, Tara, you're going to be doing more Green Day pieces for the News and Review. I, I hope to, hope that you will be. I hope so too. We'll we'll see. I'll keep you posted on that. All right. One. Well, I'm sure Jeff Von Kane is listening. Jeff, put this put this gal to work. All right. Well, Tara, before you go, I, I want to cite something in the article that which I always thought was amazing that uh, that Sacramento used to <laughs> used to ship its garbage up to Reno, which I guess we finally stopped. What was the deal with that? I don't know. I mean, the, that was the contract that they had. They didn't have. Kiefer Landfill, which is a landfill that um, Sacramento currently sends its trash to, wasn't open at that time. And so for some reason, the city of Sacramento deemed it appropriate to send the trash. (laughs) 282-mile round trip, which was at the time and probably still the longest trip that trash has to take in in the state of California. So yeah, I mean, we've made a lot of progress since then. Luckily and um, hopefully keep making progress along the same path. Well, I hope so, because that seems pretty... It just just uh, the, the waste of resources to, to, for the gas to pump it over I-80, over, over, the, over the Sierra and bring exactly. it back. Jeez, my God. Exactly. Well, Tari Eschke, thanks for updating us on this piece, and I hope you'll come on again and talk about some future uh, uh, Green Days-type materials. Thank you so much for having me. All right, let's segue from a uh, Green Day's column in the Sacramento News and Review to another column in Astronomy Magazine by our favorite astronomy columnist, Bob Berman. The June 2012 edition of Astronomy had uh, a specially good piece by Bob. By the way, I would refer you to the current edition of KDVations, where our interview with Mr. Berman is in print. Be sure to read it in good light. But as Mr. Berman noted in, uh, in this column that people often roll their eyes when old-timers reminisce. So he noted that although I'm not yet getting Social Security, I'm hesitant to share memories of the good old days. But this month's Venus transit forces me to. It's the last of the biggies, he said, the final super-rare sky spectacle I dreamt about when I was a kid. As a 13-year-old living in my library's astronomy section, I memorized all the named stars and their spectral classes. What I could not do was make time pass faster so I could experience the near-mythical future events those books promised. I trembled with excitement over the prospect of someday traveling to the 1970 total eclipse in Virginia Beach. 
I drooled at the thought of gazing at the famous Halley's Comet scheduled to arrive in the far future of 1986. The books promised a meteor storm in 1999 and was supposed to reprise the awesome 1966 event I'd read about, where Texans saw 60 meteors a second. That'd be followed by the new millennium. I wondered if the world would celebrate on December 31st, 1999, when all those digits would dramatically flip like a car odometer. After that, only two further extraordinary events dwelled in my adolescent brain, the transit of Venus in 2004 and its twin in 2012. Venus had not crossed the sun's face since 1882, so this transit pair would be the rarest of all events during my lifetime. Bob asked, how did those things work out in the fullness of time? Well, Virginia Beach was cloudless and amazing. Halley's Comet proved a disappointing smudge. I led a group to South Asia to observe its perihelion return in the spring of 1986, and its tail fell off. We all wanted a refund. Turns out it was Halley's least favorable visit in history. It looked far inferior to Comet Bennett in 1970, West in 1976, Haya Kutaki in 96, and Hale Bopp in 97. Even my college astronomy professors hadn't known that the Earth Sun Halley geometry would be terrible this time around, and then only the next time, in 2061, will it stretch across half the sky. It'll be even better for its following visit in the 22nd century. It'll be the best Halley conditions since Julius Caesar created his famous salad. He went on, the Leonid storm fizzled in 1999, although it later fashioned a fine show in the wee hours of November 18th, 2001. No storm but the best-ever meteors for most of us. Nowadays, the experts don't anticipate any storm until 2099. The Millennium Celebrations, they were just okay, tempered perhaps by the Y2K fears. Then came the 2004 transit. It didn't disappoint. Venus materialized with just the naked eye protection by number 14 welder's goggles. The transit didn't pack the visceral punch of a total solar eclipse. It wasn't pretty like a great comet, but Venus was there, like clockwork, and it was even a bit eerie. Of course, Bob Berman saw that in 2004 when people on the East Coast got a ringside seat. This time, this week, 2012, turned out well for us here on the West Coast. Part I like about the column, Berman asks, what about today's 13-year-olds? What might be on their list of rare, don't-miss celestial spectacles? What beckons as they look ahead to their Metamucil years? Well... Start with the coast-to-coast eclipse of August 21, 2017. It's the first solar totality over the mainland U.S. in 38 years. Then 10 months later, June 2018, the asteroid Vesta comes extraordinarily close and sparkles easily to the naked eye. Next, a lovely solar totality from Texas, New England on April 8, 2024. Five years later, 2029, the asteroid Apophis barely misses us and visibly glides across the sky on April 13th. Then comes the longest totality in United States history, August 12th, 2045. Six full minutes of noonday stars and pink prominences. Our current 13-year-olds will also get an extremely close Mars encounter in 2050. Finally, there's that amazing Comet Halley visit in 2061, followed by two U.S. solar totalities within 12 months in 2078 and 2079, capped by that meteor, that expected Leonid meteor storm of 2099. I, I hope you're writing this down. Well, you need not write it down because you can always go back and listen to this program <laughs> as we, we tell the tale. 
It is very cool to imagine being 13 and looking to the future and these great spectacles that will come our way. I'm sorry to note that being even slightly older than Bob Berman, I think the best I can hope for is that total eclipse in 2045. I hope as a nonagenarian, my eyes will hold up. But the same issue of Astronomy Magazine is worth uh, checking out for the cover story. Why billions of rogue planets drift through space. Which I note on the actual page of the article, they changed slightly to, do billions of rogue planets drift through space? Which is a pretty big difference. That's kind of like the difference between why UFOs visit the Earth versus do UFOs visit the Earth? But it's, uh, it's a good read explaining how scientists are looking for planets that are out in the middle of space not orbiting a star, and they have found pretty good evidence of that, that they're out there, and they're out there in numbers. I don't put a lot of faith in some computer simulations, but uh, people who study early solar systems, astronomers that uh, look at what they seem to look like as, as they're condensing down from clouds of gas, they, they run the numbers through what planetary formations um, should take place and how it should go, and they conclude that an awful lot of times the interactions between these protoplanets should fling these planets out of their various star systems. Since the math was pretty compelling, they decided to look out there into deep space and see if they could find them, and the method they used was a momentary brightening in a star caused by the bending of light around such an object. If it lines up directly between us on the Earth, the star uh, out in deep space, it will magnify the light because the light rays passing around this, this, this object will bend enough to, well, focus on us. They've done the math on how much brightening you'd, ex you'd expect from a planet and how much brightening you'd expect from a star. You'd get a lot more from, from a star if it lines up properly. But they found numerous brightenings, at least 10 of them anyway. Uh, statistically, they can extrapolate that into billions of planets out there. And from what I can understand, uh, the evidence for this is, is pretty solid. In fact, this work winds up being a collaboration of the Microlensing Observations in Astrophysics, MOA, and the Optical Gravitational Lensing Experiment, OGLE. So the MOA slash OGLE people got together and, uh, well, they surveyed the brightness of 50 million stars for two years to catch these brief lensing events. And uh, they need, of course, multiple observations to, to detect the characteristic rise and fall of that source's light. And uh, they found 474 incidents of microlensing, 10 of which were brief enough, less than two days, to involve planetary-sized objects no more than a few Jupiter masses. Pretty slick stuff. No, I'm not a good enough astronomer to tell you how brown dwarfs fit into this, but according to the article, they think that these objects are planets and not uh, these sort of cool quasi-stars we call brown dwarfs. And since there seems to be so many of these, probably as many planets floating out free of stars as orbiting stars, well, that's just, that's just, a, that's just a game changer in how we think of planets. They're even speculating that if you have a large enough such planet, that, uh, that is hot from condensing down from, uh, from a primordial gas cloud, that it may be insulated well enough to stay warm for a long, long time as it, you know, hurtles through deep space. Curious stuff. We're going to have to talk to some people again at the Planetary Society about this. And, uh, well, 
where the current thinking is going. Another blurb has to do with Vesta mentioned in that Bob Berman article. When he says it'll be visible to the naked eye, that's kind of a big deal because asteroids generally are not. Vesta is the brightest of all of them. It is just barely visible to the naked eye, but I guess when it makes that appearance a few years down the road, it'll be, well, it'll be like a, a dim star, but it's just cool that you can see it without a telescope. Meanwhile, out at Vesta, which the uh, Dawn spacecraft is currently orbiting, they've discovered there are two vast craters in, the, in Vesta's southern hemisphere, which explain why there's so many pieces of it here on Earth and apparently spread throughout the solar system. There was a couple of big kapows, one after the other, about a billion years apart, that almost split the asteroid into, into pieces, but just didn't quite do so. Still a lot of science being done at Vesta, and of course that Dawn spacecraft is going to blast away from it and go out to the largest of the asteroids series, I believe, uh, year after next. It's going to be cool stuff. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We have more to talk about in our third segment about uh, celestial matters and some matters closer to home. (laughs) 